Thief Train. 60 years ago, a Royal Mail train was apprehended in Buckinghamshire. You won't see an event like this in Thomas the Tank Engine. All aboard, let's find out about the great train robbery. Choo choo! Hello everyone, we have a nice light episode today discussing what's probably one of the better known cases of theft in the UK, the Great Train Robbery. Trigger warnings, injury, mentions of war, murder, and voluntary and aliving. And uh, oh, that's it. I uh, told you this episode was light. On to the background with Echo, I guess. Background. There were a number of participants to perform this crime. They were Bruce Reynolds, Roger Cordry, Gordon Goody, Buster Edwards, Charlie Wilson, Jimmy Hussey, Ronnie Biggs, Tommy Wisby, John Weeter, Jimmy White and Brian Field. Here is a focus on a few of them. Bruce Reynolds was born on the 7th of September 1931. He was the only child of his parents, Thomas and Dorothy. At the age of four, his mother sadly passed away, and when his father remarried, they moved to Gantz Hill. Bruce found it difficult to live with his stepmother, so he would often choose to stay with one of his grandmas until the time of the London Blitz during World War II, where he was evacuated to Suffolk and later Warwickshire. He left school at 14 and attempted to join the Royal Navy. Regrettably, he failed to meet the entry requirements after failing an eye test. His career from there becomes a bit choppy. He fancied himself a foreign correspondent, so applied for a job as a messenger boy. And then the accounts department within the Daily Mail. But by the age of 17, he had grown bored and changed to work within the Institute of Pathology at Middlesex Hospital. Before going back to bicycle messenger role and part of a semi-professional racing team wherein he met criminals and began his criminal career. Most of his crimes were theft focused, but there were also a few assaults, money laundering and drug crimes. Buster Edwards was born Ronald Christopher Buster Edwards on the 27th of January 1931. Also born in London, he lived with his father, a barman, a relatively unassuming life until the point where he left school and became a factory workman. Working in a sausage factory in a post-war England, he started his career in crime by stealing sausage to sell on the black market. He was later enlisted to the RAF as part of the National Service and during that time he was detained for the theft of cigarettes. Following his detention, he became a professional criminal and eventually he became a nightclub owner. He also got married and had a daughter in 1952. Charles, also goes by the name of Charlie, Wilson was born in June 30th, 1932 in Battersea, London to his parents, Bill and Mabel Wilson. He was childhood friends with most of the team involved in the Great Train Robbery. From 1948 to 1950, he undertook national service. He married his wife in 1955 and together they had three children. 
Charlie hated that he had to deal with his father's low income at an early age and turned to crime at an early stage in his life. And though he had a job as a butcher at his in-law's business, Ronald Ronnie Biggs was born on the 8th of August 1929. As with most of the participants within the Great Drain Robbery, he too had to be evacuated during World War II. He was evacuated on three different occasions, his last one being to Cornwall. At the age of 18, he was enlisted to the RAF, but in 1949, he was dishonorably discharged for desertion after he had been found breaking into the local chemist. Shortly after, he was sent to prison for stealing cars. That's where he met Bruce Reynolds. Following his third stint in prison, Ronnie tried to reform. He married a 21-year-old trainee as a carpenter, and they had three sons together. Brian Arthur Field was born in December 1934. He was put up for adoption. Despite what some might see as a bumpy start, he was a solicitor's clerk. He served two years in the Royal Army Service Corps, which saw him serve in the Korean War. When the war concluded in 1953, he was 18. By the time he was 28, he was well established in his role as a managing clerk at John Wheater and Co. His home life was equally successful. He had married a pretty girl from Germany called Karin, and together they had a house in Oxfordshire that they named Cadbury a combination of Brian and Karen. It's thought that some of the reason for this success was that he was feeding information to the less well-off clients about his wealthier clients and what they had in their homes. And he was well compensated for it, enough so that he could drive around in a new Jag. He came into contact with the train robbery crew when he had previously represented Bruce Edwards. With some of the members introduced, over to you, Turtle, with the robbery. For that echo. The group of people involved in this crime was about 15 to 17 people. It depends on if you then also include the two informants that were a retired train driver and somebody known as the Ulsterman. They have not been named. In the case of the Ulsterman, it's because their real identity has never been identified. The decision to start planning a robbery occurred after Brian Fields introduced a senior security officer who worked for the Royal Mail to Gordon Goody and Buster Edwards. The security officer had vast amounts of detailed knowledge about the train and the money that would be in transit. A plan to use this information to perform a raid was conceived by Goody, Edwards, and Charlie Wilson. There was just one problem. Of these four men, well sorry, three men, not one of them had any idea of how to intercept and subsequently rob the train. With that in mind, they agreed to contact another group of criminals known as the South Coast Raiders, who, as the name suggests, were allegedly experienced in stopping and raiding trains. This included Tommy Wisby, this group also had a member who knew how to rig rail side signals 
As there was more planned, the organisation gathered other associates such as Ronnie Biggs. The robbery itself occurred on the 7th of August 1963. The train that they were going to rob was the Travelling Post Office, commonly referred to as the TPM. 1850 up special. It left Glasgow Central to the destination of London Euston, where it was scheduled to arrive at 4 in the morning. Just a fun fact for all you train spotters, it was pulled by an English electric type 4 diesel electric locomotive. The train consisted of 12 carriages and there were 72 members of staff for the post office who were sorted through the mail that was loaded onto the train at Glasgow and throughout the journey at various line stops. You can see one of those carriages at Neen Valley Railway. The carriage that this motley crew were interested in was the High Value Packages Coach, which was, as the name suggests, the coach where large sums of money were often carried. Typically, this was around £300,000. However, because the weekend before had been a bank holiday, the actual sum of money on the HVP coach was nearer to between £2.5 and £3 million. When it came to actually stopping the train, the culprits tampered with the signal light on the main line at Sears, crossing between Leighton Buzzard and Cheddington by covering the green light of the signal with a glove and using a battery power and using a battery to power the red light. So at three o'clock, Jack Mills, the train driver from Crewe, stopped the train and as the stop was unexpected, the second man on the train, David Whitby, climbed down and called for a signal man or at least to try to, but the lines had been cut. When he was returning to the train, he was overpowered. Meanwhile, the other robbers entered the engine's cabin from both sides. As Jack Mills tried to resist, he received a whack to the head from a metal rod and was rendered semi-unconscious. The robbers moved the train down to what was then known as Bridigo Bridge, approximately half a mile down the line where they planned to unload the Mini with the help of a former train driver. They uncoupled the other carriages, leaving the sorters behind. And whilst on paper this was a good idea, in actuality, when it came to the practice, the driver that they had hired was unable to operate the locomotive. They stuck in a pinch with no alternative. Mills, who had spent some time scouting the area and familiarising himself with the staff and how trains worked, operated the locomotive with supervision from the hired driver. The train stopped at the stopping point, which was marked by a white sheet spread across the tracks, and the gang approached the HVP, intent on storming the carriage. The other members of the staff were simply incapacitated, and the remaining staff lay face down on the floor in the carriage, and the two front men were dragged in and handcuffed together. They then removed 120 bags in about 20 minutes, by forming a human chain from the train to the awaiting truck, which was different to the vehicles that they had arrived in. This was an attempt to throw off any witness accounts. They escaped using minor roads and listening to police broadcasts on the VHF radio, which meant that the journey to the farm that they were using as a hideout took approximately an hour. When they arrived at the farm, they counted out the smaller sums that they had promised to associates of the gang and then split the remainder into 16. This came to roughly £150,000 each. Shortly after this, the police radio informed them that an eyewitness had said that they weren't to move for half an hour, which meant that they had probably gone to ground within a 30-mile radius, meaning that the farm would be discovered sooner than anticipated. 
Their plan to overcome this was to bring forward the plan for abandoning the farm from the Sunday to the Friday. They couldn't use the vehicles because the train staff had been the train staff had seen them. This is where Brian Field came to the rescue. He came to collect his share and then took Roy James to London to find an extra vehicle, while other members made arrangements for other escape vehicles, which included some vans. There had been arrangements for a comprehensive clean-up and to set fire to the property to ensure that there was no chance of prints. Unfortunately for the gang, although they themselves had done a comprehensive clean, the arrangements that had been made for afterwards fell through because the person who had been hired to do a secondary clean and torch failed to do so. By the time the arrangements to get to the farm to rectify this were made, the police had already discovered the location. Back to Echo for the investigation. I'm just going to put a little insert here as well before I go on to the investigation. While listening to that, I can't help but imagine like some sort of action movie like scene of them hijacking a train. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. On to the investigation. A railman that was left behind at the signal got a goods train to Chellington which they arrived to the station and were able to raise the alarm at 4.20am, 20 minutes after the train was expected to arrive at Houston. The police report that came through the radio said, a robbery has been committed. You'll never believe this. They've stolen a train. At 5am, Malcolm Futrell, head of Buckinghamshire Police Criminal Investigation Department, arrived at the scene, supervised some evidence gathering before heading to Cheddington Railway Station, where he took witness statements. No lasting damage was done to anyone of the staff on the train that night. By lunchtime, he was well aware that he would need additional resources, so referred the case to Scotland Yard. At some point, they had a tip-off from a herdsman using a nearby field resulting in the police discovering the farm that the train robbers had used. It was deserted. What they found there was a truck, which had been painted yellow. The Land Rovers, a large quantity of food and bedding, the post office sacks, and the Monopoly board game, which was later discovered to have been used after the robbery, but with real money. Most of the property had been wiped So there were few prints. The prints they did find were handed to Scotland Yard. Despite the discovery of Leatherside Farm, things in the investigation were not going well. Chief Superintendent Tommy Butler formed a six-man team called the Train Robbery Squad and they scoured the farm. Breakthrough came when an anonymous informant came forward. They were serving time in prison but a second informant was later able to fill in the gaps. This allowed them to collect 18 names for detectives to compare with prints found on the scene. The decision was made to publish photos of the gang, despite concerns from some that the robbers might then go to ground, which indeed they did. Turtle, would you mind covering the trial and capture? Of course not. But um, if you don't mind, I'm going to cover the capture first and then the trial. Go for it. 
<laughs> the first to be captured was Roger Corduroy. He was lying low with a friend William Bowl, also known as Bill Bowl. Above a florist in Bournemouth, police received a tip from someone that he wanted to rent a garage and had paid three months rent in advance with cash. A couple going for a walk found some more money abandoned in luggage-like holdalls and when they called police investigators they found more abandoned bags of cash and more arrests followed for eight more members of the gang and their associates. The trial began in 1964 at Buckinghamshire. It lasted 51 days and had 204 witnesses, the jury and lawyers having to use nearby buildings because of the sheer scale of the trial. During the trial, John Daly was acquitted after his lawyer pointed out that fingerprints on a Monopoly game and keeping a low profile and association with other members isn't proof of conspiracy. And the judge agreed. Aside from this, they were all found guilty. The time they were given is as follows. Ronald Biggs, age 34. Douglas Goody, age 34. Charles Wilson, age 31. Thomas Wisby, age 34. Robert Welch, 34. James QC, age 34. And Roy James, age 28, were all sentenced to 30 years for conspiracy of robbery and armed robbery. Brian Field, age 29, and Leonard Field, uh, no relation, age 31, both received 25 years for conspiracy and obstruction of justice. Roger Corduroy, age 42, was sentenced to 20 years for conspiracy and receiving stolen goods. John Wheater, age 41, received a three-year sentence for aiding and abetting. And finally, William Bowl, aged 50, got 24 years. Shortly after this, the appeals came flooding in, first with the field who got their sentence reduced to five years, and then Roger Corduroy and William Bold who managed to remove the charge of conspiracy. Unfortunately, William Bold died in prison after a long illness in 1970. Then we're going to move on to the escapes with Echo. Thank you, Turtle. In 1964, Charles Wilson escaped from prison. The escape had a three-man team break into the prison to break him out. He was then seen in Paris receiving plastic surgery when he later went to Mexico City to visit two old friends, Bruce Reynolds and Buster Edwards. Eleven months later, Ronald Biggs escaped prison when a furniture van was parked by the prison and a ladder was dropped over the wall allowing Ronald and three others to escape. He then, like Wilson, went to Paris and had plastic surgery. Back to you, Turtle, for the remaining fugitives. The remaining fugitives. Jimmy White was able to fade and merge. In fact, prior to the robbery, he'd been on the lam, which is a very British way of saying on the run, for 10 years. In 1966, he was recognised and arrested and he was given 18 years. Buster Edwards has previously mentioned that he made it to Mexico with his family, but in 1966 he was sentenced to 15 years after he voluntarily returned to England. Charlie Wilson stayed in Canada for a number of years before he invited his brother-in-law to visit 
and was instead greeted by Scotland Yard. Unbeknownst to Charlie, he had also led them to Bruce Reynolds. Bruce Reynolds was running low on his share of money, so was headed to Torquay where he was then arrested. Ronnie Biggs fled to Australia and then later Brazil, where he was able to live openly until 2001 as Brazil and Britain didn't have an extradition treaty and he had managed to father a Brazilian son, which also gave him legal immunity. However, having had three strokes, he later volunteered himself to return to England so long as he was able to visit a pub in Margate and buy a pint of bitter as an Englishman. He was arrested and made to serve the remainder of his sentence, but at age 71 he was released on compassionate grounds before his 80th birthday, later dying at the age of 84. Over to Echo with the fate of the robbers. Most of the robbers have died now. The article I found said that since two of the members died in 2016, Robert Welch was the only one left. However, that was written in 2016. Brian Field passed away in a car accident. Charlie Wilson was shot in what was suspected as drug-related crimes on the doorstep of his villa in Spain. Buster Edwards voluntarily unalived himself in a garage in 1994. Roy James died of complications following heart surgery. Bruce Reynolds, Roger Cordry and John Daly went because they were old. Douglas Goody suffered from an illness and later passed away. And the fate of the victims? Jack Mills struggled with trauma headaches for the rest of his life, like before dying of leukemia. David Whitby never recovered from the psychological trauma. And though he was able to resume his work, he died from a heart attack at the age of 34. William Bowl died in prison after being considered an accomplice after the fact. His family are trying to have his name cleared following statements from two of the gang. And on to our thoughts and opinions. Uh, so I'm just going to jump in. Uh, yeah, two of the gang, I think it's um, Goody um, who has said that um you uh he wasn't involved at all um and it's literally just uh Cordry's decision to um involve him after the fact um but he knew nothing and that his sentence was too heavy if that um, was the case i do think that his his name should be cleared and I'm in full support of his family for getting his name cleared. Yeah. Also, I don't know if it's just because he's got like a nice sounding name, but Charlie, I was rooting for Charlie all the way through, and then I was like, oh, he's got shot. Oh, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't condone train robbery or stuff, but if it's iconic, you want to go, wow. And it was just, Charlie was involved in crime from an early age. Okay, okay, that's a... If he wasn't involved in crime, I wouldn't hear about his life. And then he's done this amazing robbery, and I was like, "Yeah, that's it. Now turn it all around and be good, because you've made your you've made your escape." And then, nope, he's still in crime. I was like, "Charlie." Oh, I tell you what, it it does feel like reading it, talking about it, researching it. 
it does feel like something right out of an action film. It doesn't feel real, and yet you know it's real. It was 60 years ago, it's got to be involved in media and stuff like that. Yeah, but you know what I mean? It just feels like it shouldn't, it's not something, it feels... Oh, what's, what is it? Where you just can't believe it happened. It doesn't feel like real life. Yeah. <laughs> All these guys stole a train, in essence. Yeah. It just seems like something out of a movie. It doesn't. I know people say that life, real life, is stranger than fiction, but definitely in this case. I mean, oh. just I just I'd like. It's not as bad as the Vampire of Dusseldorf that we did last week. Yeah, yeah probably I'm... a few weeks ago by now, but I recorded it last. Week. I'm actually so glad that you did the re-recording of that without me. I don't think I could have handled it last week with everything that was going on, so thank you for that. So, I'm so miffed that I didn't, it needed re-recording. I was miffed at that too because it was so hard to get through the first time. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, it just seems like it's such a crazy case. It's nice to do a light one as well. It is. It is. I may see if I can get some um, footage when I'm editing the video of a train robbery. We'll see. We'll see what I can muster up. <laughs> I wonder if the original Thomas the Tank Engine music is still copyrighted. <laughs> Just have that going on behind this. Uh, any of the um, names from Thomas. You would know this better than me. I mean, you've got Thomas in there, but are there any others? Unlikely. Thomas oh. was Thomas was originally a book series. I was gonna claim that Thomas the Tank Engine was based on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I hypothesise that Thomas the Tank Engine was based on this and all of the characters were based on the robbers. Hang on. I wouldn't be surprised if that was a thing. Let me check. Runs to Google. If something like this can be pulled off as crazy as it is and actually have happened, then life is not that strange to think that Thomas the Tank Engine would be based off the Great Train Robbery. 1951. Ah, uh, uh, uh. Why have they written these in not number order? Making me look like an idiot. It's not hard, but... What? Okay, 1948, I think. I'm just running through all these books now, um, panicking. I'm going to just keep saying numbers and they're going to be wrong. 1946. Oh, so well before this then. Yeah, good one. Oh, Maybe God. they got inspiration from the Thomas the Tank Engine books. Oh my God, now that would <laughs> be... That would be brilliant if it is. 
Learn how to drive a locomotive from watching Thomas the Tank Engine planned an entire train robbery that was as successful as it was from watching Thomas the Tank Engine and I mean I know they say life is stranger than fiction but that'd just top it off I think with that we'll draw the episode to a close, or is there anything more you'd like to say? Don't still train people, I will sit and take the mick out of you on my podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that will be the case if there's any other train robberies. Um, and with that, that is it for this episode. If you like this episode, please give us a like or a rating and subscribe for more. And we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Don't forget that you can always comment on our um... Instagram, Facebook, TikTok on any of the TikTok videos, uh, YouTube. Comment below of any cases that you'd like us to cover. Yes, thank you for covering my cat moment. <laughs> it's okay, I completely understood that you'd had a cat moment then. <laughs> I don't even know what did it, it was just like a flashy light underneath my shelf and I haven't moved so I don't know what made the flashy light. <laughs> Next episode of The Shit Detectives, Turtle is going to work out what the flashy light was and I'm still going to claim that it was a ghost that haunted us last week. It might be because I was doing really well and now I've been trapped. Oh no, I've solved it. It's, it, it's my light bulb on my glasses. <laughs> this is new personal though. It's ghosts. 100%, 1000% is ghosts. This is a new personal though. <laughs> See you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.